there's no ice in my heart. Only a cast iron pan with butter. Bacon fat? Mm, I mean, if we're making sweet and savory waffles, then yeah, I guess. Let's make a sweet and savory waffle podcast. Great. I love waffles and podcasts. This is Oil & Water Relay. I'm Joe LaVisca. And I'm Rachel Dunkeld. Oil & Water Relay is a conversational space where we sift through recent news about Keystone XL and related oil and gas projects from around the U.S. and the world. This is a chance for us to share our emerging insights and pass the conversation on to you, our listeners. Tune into our feature-length podcast, Oil & Water, for in-depth stories on Keystone XL, including interviews and stories with people impacted by the pipeline. Each episode, Joe and I will talk through a handful of recent news stories, summarizing the basic points of the story and offering our interpretations. We're recording this on Monday, January 25th, 2021. And to find each Oil & Water Relay episode, go to our website at oilandwaterpod.com and click on the episode's link. Or follow the links in our social media posts. All right, should we get started? Yeah, let's get started. Great. So the first article we have in front of us is from The New Yorker, written by Bill McKibben, and it's called Joe Biden's cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline is a landmark in the climate fight. So McKibben wrote this article for The New Yorker on January 20th of this year. And in proper Bill McKibben style, he lays out the foundation of the issue that's in front of us. So Keystone XL has been a political ping pong match since 2008 and it's likely now dead for good. This pipeline was already known as the zombie pipeline, and that's because it has been killed and revived so many times over the years. So at this point, I'm not sure that we can really know for sure that its legacy is over, especially when these these pipeline projects are all tied to federal permits. Yeah, McKibben writes, In his first hours of office, Joe Biden has settled, almost certainly, once and for all, one of the greatest environmental battles this country has ever seen. And McKibben suggests that KXL reflects the broader narrative of the U.S. environmental story in the 21st century. And that's of a growing public awareness and acceptance that human-caused climate change is worth our efforts to mitigate and that oil and gas infrastructure projects like KXL have an impact on our communities and climate. Yeah, so I was surprised to find that the primary opposition to the KXL was actually regarding the community impact that it would have on First Nations people and farmers within the communities in Montana, Nebraska, and further south. The narrative of the Keystone XL has had such a strong climate spin to it that that overshadowed that initial opposition. Here we have a project that has drawn opposition from multiple different communities. We have the indigenous communities, farmer communities, environmental groups, and more. Those two things, community impacts and environmental impact, are closely intertwined. Those movements have become flashpoints for us, and it's important to recognize and remember that that is the primary concern. Our livelihood depends on 
being able to survive mm. in the social mm. climates that structure and shape our lives as well as being able to survive on an evolutionary scale within a context of an environment that's changing. This is what we must focus on, is the health of our communities. All of the communities. So at this point, there is a strong association by the general public between KXL, climate change, and justice movements. So as for next steps regarding oil and gas infrastructure, Enbridge's Line 3 replacement in Minnesota and the Dakota Access Pipeline in South Dakota are the big question marks. Both projects are meant to transport crude oil from large-scale fracking projects. In the case of Dapol, it carries light, sweet crude from the Bakken Shale Formation down to refineries in Texas. As for the Line 3 replacement, if completed, it would carry 800,000 barrels of heavy sour crude oil every day from Alberta tar sands down to Gulf Coast refineries. And this pipeline in particular has so many similarities to Keystone XL that to me it's a little unnerving. The start and end locations are the same, and it will carry the same diluted bitumen as KXL would have. And its capacity at 800,000 barrels a day is almost identical to that of KXL. So in a lot of ways, the fight against KXL was a fight against the Alberta tar sands generally as a project. And this, this is reflected, I think, in the similarities between KXL, DAPL, and Line 3. They are all implicated in the same injustice to indigenous and settler communities on the land and the same climate change story. Remember in our last Oil and Water Relay episode how we discussed the potential impacts of this decision. When you step across the border north into Canada, the lines are a little more blurred. There are some agreements between various First Nations, not all of them, but some First Nations and pipeline projects like the KXL. The government is in support with funding on these projects. So that statement that you just made, the fight against KXL being a fight against the Alberta Tar Sands project, is a heavy thing to bring into this conversation because it speaks to not only our energy moving forward, but also our relationship to Canada. Actually, I would reflect the video that you brought into our conversation last time with Mr. Rajot, the representative from Alberta who was lobbying in D.C., he was asking for the U.S. to think about their oil policy, our oil policy, as a North American policy rather than a U.S. policy. And, you know, I think generally he's, he's very right about that. We have established these lines of, of profit around oil and oil extraction. And if we cut those off, then we need to be able to put something in their place to a certain extent. One thing I wanted to revisit before we move on, is the logic behind the cancellation of a pipeline from a safety standpoint. Because many advocates of pipelines talk about their safety record relative to other modes of transportation. Basically, if we are going to be using oil, which we will, um, no one's arguing that for the foreseeable future, we need to be able to move it. So how are we choosing to move it? And in terms of safety, it really depends on what standards you consider. So there was a 2018 Forbes article published that ran through these different safety standards. And what they found is in terms of human lives lost to historical oil spills, the statistics show that boats are the safest, 
followed by pipelines, then trains, and then trucks. And just to give you some context, oftentimes when we think about a pipeline being canceled, usually that capacity is then taken up and moved by either trains or trucks. But if we use environmental damage as our standard, the safety of these transportation modes is flipped. Rail becomes the safest, followed by trucking, then pipelines, and then boats. And this discrepancy is largely due to the presence of water, right? In rail and trucking, it's less often that the oil is near water, and it's less likely that a spill will occur in the presence of water. Whereas with pipelines and boats, it's almost a given that if a spill occurs, it's in the water. And I think this is so important because really it's about taking the long view in terms of our methods of transportation and protecting our first medicine, which is a phrase that I learned about from a Lakota gentleman on the Fort Peck Reservation in Montana, but just referring to water being the most important substance that we have to use and to relate to. So if we take the long view, I would even argue that in terms of human lives, the health of human lives, again, it's a matter of protecting our water, isn't it? More human lives will be impacted in the long run if we don't have clean water. Forbes, I think, recognizes that that's a, not the strongest political argument. So they also take a look at safety in terms of costs. And they actually use published metrics for what is the dollar amount of a human life according to insurance and as well as the dollar amount for reclamation after an oil spill. And they find again that for safety in terms of how much is it going to cost, the the statistics are more in line with rail and trucking being much safer than pipelines and boats. So I guess the the takeaway for me there is it's complicated, but the relationship between moving oil and protecting water is so tightly linked in this in this scenario. It's also, I think, to highlight that because I think it is a common phrase in the industry to hear pipelines are the safest mode of transportation, that that assertion is based on one metric alone, which is the metric of human lives lost to historical oil spills and property damage. Right, yeah, and property, yeah. Yeah, and and something that's not mentioned in that too is pipelines are the fastest and most efficient way of moving oil, mm-hmm. which I think yeah. is actually the crux of the issue. It's the implicit, um, mm-hmm. the elephant in the room here because, yeah, oil pipelines allow oil companies to move their product cheaper and quicker, and that means more profit, but it also means more risk. And that's what we as the public, uh, the people who are affected by spills, that's what we see is, yeah, it means faster oil moving, more risk for spill. Following in that vein, that narrative of having many opposition groups to various pipeline projects, the idea of a fight and holding on to the victory continues with ammo found in green energy data and wins in other canceled fossil fuel projects. So the question I think is, what are we fighting for? What are the opposition fighting for? If everyone wants a healthy and prosperous future, what does it take to get there? 
and who's prospering from pipeline development in particular. And that, to me, segues well into the, f- the closing remarks of McKibben's article. Joe, what he had to say about union impact. Yeah, so at the end of his essay, McKibben points out that whether or not we move forward with these two other pipeline projects, DAPL and Lion 3, it may come down to whether labor unions fall in line with these just transition style movements in the industry. So this is kind of reminiscent from one of our earlier conversations about how during the campaign, Biden won support from the Minnesota DFL by not overtly condemning the Line 3 replacement because that labor force really looked to Line 3 for job security. I think even the Democratic representatives were in support of Line 3 because of labor unions. Yeah, so that will likely become our focus moving forward. With that, I think Bill McKibben highlights so strongly that mentality regarding transitioning to clean energy. Many people, particularly labor unions and conservatives, believe we are making a choice. A choice for the environment over people's jobs. But is it really one or the other when it comes to clean energy? In an article published by Politico titled Biden Set to Supercharge Clean Energy Push with $40 Billion Stash, published on January 1st, 2021, lays out the role that the Department of Energy will have in stepping in towards a clean energy system. Big moves this week on the Biden-Harris front. We saw a lot of executive orders signed, and that was everything from canceling KXL, which we've mentioned previously, to signing the Paris Accord, as well as rejoining the World Health Organization. So those executive orders are first steps, and government agencies such as the Department of Energy will take those building blocks and start laying a foundation for a shift to clean energy. Uh, according to our article. So as they take office, the Biden and Harris administration have two priorities regarding climate change. Their first is to revamp the economy following the pandemic. And the second is their follow through on climate pledges, specifically relating to energy. So there were a couple of different pledges that they made. First was a net zero on the power grid by 2035 and the second, a net zero economy-wide in the United States by 2050. Hey, Joe, do you want to explain the difference between net zero on the power grid and net zero economy-wide? Oh, yeah. Well, I think the production of electricity is always tied to CO2 emissions. And so that pledge particularly is aimed at reducing and actually neutralizing CO2 emissions by 2035 of the production of electricity in our country. But then we do so many other things beyond producing electricity that produce CO2 emissions, right? And so that might be what comes out of your tailpipe, but also any sorts of emissions associated with the work that you do or your lifestyles, right? Like (laughs) I drive to a trailhead to go hiking and (laughs) there are certainly climate emissions uh, associated with that. So those climate emissions, hopefully by 2050, will be reduced to a net zero. So what's the plan? Well, according to this article, 
It's a $2 trillion climate and infrastructure plan that includes the transportation sector, buildings sector, research into energy storage, carbon capture, and the utilization of up-and-coming technologies, as well as setting standards for appliances, which is an interesting part of the Department of Energy that I didn't really know about, actually. So $2 trillion, that's a lot of money. But the good news is there's actually $40 billion sitting in the Department of Energy as a deposit already. It's left over from the 2009 stimulus under the Obama administration. Originally, it was meant to be used by the Energy Department Loan Authority, but the legislation for that money could be tweaked for anything from labor retraining programs to research grants, or, as we're likely to expect, an umbrella that includes many different investments. Those goals show that, according to Politico, a clean energy transition could actually help the U.S. economy survive the pandemic by driving demand for new technology and creating openings in the job market in the transportation, construction, and research sectors, just to name a few. So, what does it mean for us? Well, first, I'd like to point out, both your and my articles, Joe, had an interesting connection which was that neither of them specifically talked about the Green New Deal, which is this concept that we heard quite a bit at the beginning of the various presidential campaigns back in 2018 and 2019. But as soon as Biden secured the spot for the Democratic candidacy, that language shifted. Everything in this article was promising. It's a lot of what we're hoping for, right, as we move forward under a Biden and Harris administration is that action on the things that many of the constituents believe are important issues, such as climate change, such as jobs, such as economic shifts and changes following a global pandemic. But one thing that shift still reflects is this consumption-based economic model that relies on tech fixes to solve the admissions without changing the model of consumption. You know, from our perspective, I think for both of us, Rachel, we see the damage that an industrial growth society does to our world and our lives. And, you know, recognizing that it does a lot of good things, but the fact that our model is growth without end, it really points to a need for change. Yeah. And just to bring some actual data and something that might make tangible sense of what we're talking about right now, one of the Biden goals is to shift the nationwide fleet of vehicles to electric vehicles. Imagine the kind of investment in technology that that implies, an investment in metals, precious metals that go into building batteries, new kinds of mechanic and auto body shops that need to be created to cater to an electric vehicle only. With the clean energy future, the underlying implicit assumption is that we will continue growing our economy. And that, I think, as we narrow down this national conversation to what are we really fighting about, it may very likely become that question. How can we curb our growth or even come up with a new model that isn't dependent on growth, but still may grow at times? I can't wait to see that happen. 
I know. Interesting things for the future. We can only hope that some of that change happens and that it's changed for good. Well, thanks, Rachel. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Um, Check the show notes for all the links to the articles we talked about this episode. Remember, check back for our feature-length podcast, Oil & Water, for in-depth stories on Keystone XL and other oil and gas infrastructure projects, including interviews and stories with people impacted. We also want you to be involved, so we'll post each episode of Oil & Water Relay on our blog and social media. We encourage you to write in your thoughts and comments. In particular, we want to hear what you think. How is your relationship with the fossil fuel industry changing as you learn more? Oil & Water is an independent project of The Systems Zoo, an educational collaborative making high-quality media for critical thinkers. Oil & Water Relay is created and produced by me, Joe LaVisca, and Rachel Dunkeld. That's me. Music by Alexi Damaray. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Oil & Water Pod and our website at www.oilandwaterpod.com. Support comes from our listeners like you. Like you. Thank you.